Hi, and welcome to The Transect, a show about archaeology in British Columbia. I'm Cody, and we've got Sean and Ian here. In today's episode, we discuss environmental assessments in BC to try and better understand the complicated process and get some different perspectives with the help of a special guest. So I'd like to introduce uh, Jay Herbert to the studio. Uh, Jay is an anthropologist working within the larger field of environmental assessments and regulation. He continues to work within the realm of large-scale consulting, where he pushes for planned and sustainable development wherever possible. His work places him at the intersection between development and provincial, federal, and First Nations governments. This allows him to continue looking for ways to improve these relationships. My, my undergrad was in anthropology at Trent University in Ontario, which is kind of a four-field approach. So I got a... I'll, wide selection of it. Um, I ended up working on a project in Belize on a Mayan site and turned my focus to archaeology. Uh, worked down there for four years, I think, and then came up and didn't know what to do with myself, so I got a job as a consulting archaeologist in Ontario. Did that for two years dug a site that ended up on a really cheesy History Channel documentary. Hmm. If you ever want to look up The Curse of the Axe, I'm not kidding you. The documentary is called The Curse of the Axe. I took a leave from there to come out and visit some friends here on the West Coast. I stayed and did, started doing my master's at SFU, where I met Sean and a couple other people. After that, disastrously fell apart, which is a different story. I ended up working, coming back to consulting archaeology. And then after two years of digging with Sean underneath the bridge, um, I was asked to join a small team in the company that looked at the environmental impacts and how they, in turn, affect constitutionally protected Aboriginal rights and interests. So you're talking about EAs, right, essentially? The the projects generally are EAs. They don't have to be environmental assessments. They can be other things. But if there's federal funding involved, if it triggers a whole bunch of federal um, or provincial licenses, generally you have to deal with, in some form or another, Aboriginal interests. Yeah. So I- f- water licenses, um, transport corridors, stuff like that. Yeah, I but think EAs are our big ones. Someone wants to build basically anything, an export terminal, a uh, shipping line, a uh, SkyTrain station. The first thing you do is you set together uh, project design. And if, you're, if you know what you're doing, you immediately share that project design with uh, any First Nation government that's overlapping with your project. Um, you also notify the provincial government and the provincial government starts their consultation. The important thing about consultation is that it's government to government. It's mandated to be government to government, meaning that the crown has the obligation to consult. There is a little line in the judgment uh, that that's the Haida test. I forget what year the Haida was in. But the obligation to consult is based on the Crown. However, there's a line in the judgment and the ruling that says that the Crown can offload certain procedural aspects of consultation, which... What does that mean? 
it's undefined, like most things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a client with a client who wants to get ahead, and a, a proponent, a developer who wants to get ahead, uh, will take those procedural aspects and develop their own consultation plan. One that tries to knock off what the governments are required to, but usually go a little bit farther. The In the last five years, the term social license has been key. You can talk about that with various different projects, but in the end, you sh- my opinion is you should be looking for social license. You should be looking for a community buy-in to your projects, or it becomes risky to spend any money trying to develop them. Um, the government will tell you what they mean by procedural aspects, especially in an environmental assessment, they issue, at least in BC, they issue what's called a uh, Section 11 order, which tells a proponent exactly what they have to do. Um, but it leaves the manner in which they fulfill those things up to the, in like to the developer. So you can put any number of different approaches to it. Okay. So uh, could we could we step back and just explain uh, the environmental assessment process and what oh, portion God. what like just in general how long is your podcast <laughs> like what what is it what? and then what portion of that is consultation with nations and like there are other things involved in environmental assessment that aren't just these things yeah like arch- like environmental assessment I feel like archaeology kind of gets tagged on there as kind of like the back end after having considered like fish habitat and everything else and. Once you once you finish all that, it's kind of then, oh, and also you have to consider the archaeological materials that may or may not be present. Uh, but it's kind of interesting that it gets wrapped up in the environmental assessment and not like a specific – although I guess it is like archaeology by its nature is, is tied to the environment. It, it has a geographic space. Uh, but I think there's different parts, right? Doesn't it go is, – is, you can explain it better. There's five parts to it, Jay? In BC, there's five pillars okay. to an environmental assessment. There's the environment, there's um, health, social and economic things, and then heritage and Aboriginal interests. So I think I might have got that wrong, but I'm going to go with it anyways. So if my <laughs> boss is listening, I swear to God I pay attention. Um, <laughs> but heritage is one of those pillars. The trick in BC is that there is the Heritage Conservation Act and there is the archaeology branch. So very clearly in the BC Environmental Assessment Agency's office, in their guidance, they say that they default to the decisions based on that branch and their regulatory stuff. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that, from an archaeological perspective, um, archaeologists who are working in a big environmental assessment feel kind of removed from the process is there's a whole different regulator you have to listen to. Um, the other four pillars, the other, for example, uh, we have discipline leads, guys who run the shows for these things, make sure the authors run. There's about 20 to 25 of them on, a, on an EA, roughly. The archie guys are the only ones who aren't trying to satisfy the BC Environmental Assessment Agency. They're trying to satisfy the ARC branch. Oh, that's super interesting. I, I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. I'd yeah. kind of, yeah. How did you think about it? Just always kind of bought into like the idea that, yeah, we were like an appendix to their Environmental Assessment Act. Like 
that uh, the environmental assessment was this whole grand thing that did all sorts of things that I didn't understand. And then at the end, in order to, you know, get everybody to sign off on it, uh, that it would be like, oh, we have to do the archaeology as well. We aren't beholden to the CEA. That's what you're saying, Jay, right? We're, we're, we're you're part of it for sure. For a bit the of, characterizations but, that come from an EA, the, the description of the impacts to a, the potential effects of a project involve its effects on heritage. Right. Um, but what it boils down to is the, as long as the archaeology branch and the Heritage Conservation Act have been satisfied the environmental assessment agency is generally pretty satisfied. All right. I have, I, so I kind of want to touch, kind of think where Ian was going a little bit with this is I kind of really want to understand sort of how first nations interests are really sort of incorporated into an EA and sort of how they understand the Mm -hmm. process. I mean, obviously we're four white guys talking about this right now. Um, you know, we'll just get that out of the way. Give that away. Come on. Yeah. Well, I I don't know. (laughs) It's pretty self evident. But there's going to be all, obviously more perspectives brought into our mm-hmm. onto the show uh, later on through the season. But could you at least talk about from your experience sort of how their interests are sort of evaluated with an EA? And, and I want to sort of go into this a little bit deeper, sort of like how well communities maybe understand this process and how willing they are to share information that they feel that is shareable or information that they don't want to share and how that could maybe negatively affect them in terms of sort of these projects because there's obviously some power imbalance in sort of these I mean, it's my perspective, sort of like seeing how developments go forward and sort of what is put as a priority for seeing a successful, quote, unquote, you know, development project. Because you said there had to be community buy-in earlier, and I was kind of curious sort of if how. You're lo- if you're looking for it. I mean, there, there, are, there are nations, something like 115, 120% of BC is overlapping claim territory. And when you work in these things, you run into nations that run the spectrum of capacity within their own offices. Um, You run the spectrum of interests in each one of these things. So if you're working a project in one part of the province with a nation that has a really intense um, desire to see their own past and their own archaeological data preserved retold uh, either not excavated or excavated fully mm-hmm. um, you'll get those from the start you'll get what are called information requests on a variety of things uh, when you put out your initial project description you get communications back when you start consulting with them on issues uh, First Nations will start flagging what their priorities are um, and some of them their priorities are social. Mm-hmm. Some of them have, have come from communities where they've seen a lot of development in the last, say, five or ten years, and they're really worried about their community structure. They're worried about how influx of new money or new jobs or uh, a changing social dynamic in the towns they live around are affecting their, what we call cultural cohesion, the sense of, of their own self in the landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you get those things, that's when my anthropology comes in. That's when we really delve into it. But then you'll get nations who are very, very concerned with the effects of a particular project on um, a caribou migration. And that's their focus. 
And so in that case, our wildlife biologists become like the key thing that we start working. We put them in front of First Nations and we talk that through. Um, when you say we, you're talking about more of a larger sort of like the com- larger like cultural a, a, because the, to do one of these things, your your project has to have so many different people, um, and beca- I usually use a collective noun to describe it because I can't do this by myself, and I have a really good team that does it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a default language to me. I tend to try to give credit to everybody, although it is fun sometimes because my team's amazing. And because I'm usually the figurehead, I get the credit for it. Yeah, I know, right? You are a figurehead. I am. I don't do anything. <laughs> I'm just really good at getting... I read what they say the night before on the plane down. And then I uh, I pretend I wrote it all. Yeah. yeah. That's a good leader. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I did this 14... 14 uh, the last one that we did that was submitted and um, finalized was, I think, 1,200 pages. That's just my section, not the EA. Sometimes people think that they, they're done writing, and so they don't want to be in academia anymore. You know, they've done their master's degree. They've done their <laughs> yeah. PhD. They've written, you know, enough pages to, you know, last them a lifetime. And so they're like, oh, let's get out of academia. Let's get into the consulting world because I'll have to write less. And just nothing could nope. be further from the truth. Just. <laughs> and that's just your part. That was just, that's just our part. Part, yeah. part C, right? So yeah. if you want to – well, part C and – uh, depending on the things. Part yeah. C is the, the Aboriginal interest in an EA for for um, for BC. You have three parts, four parts to an EA. Part A, which is the project description and all the stuff that the project's going to do and how much it's going to do and what the purpose of it is. Part B is all the um, what are called valued components. And so that's, say, impacts to wildlife or impacts to Heritage. regional economy heritage is one yeah and then part c are aboriginal interests which and, and how seriously are they taking in these eas i mean this is kind of where i'm always interested in this, yeah. this, this. how is this evaluated once once you've got the completed document and you have these these interests uh documented how how is it evaluated and to what degree are they weighing all of these different issues I know it's a pretty general Okay, let me tell you answer. ideally what happens, and then we can go into maybe whether or not that actually happens. Okay. Yeah. So what happens is is the developer, we'll call the proponent, goes and looks at all of the project effects, um, does two or three years of baseline or existing condition data studies, goes out, looks at what the marine infrastructure is like, or maybe where those caribou migration routes really are if you're doing something like a hydro line that might screw them up. Um, part of that involves us doing like a, what's called a traditional knowledge study. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases we'll do it with the First Nations and elders, and other times the nation will do it themselves and submit it to us. We take that. We Sorry, kind- interject. Who does it for the nation? So they the Other consulting other companies. Other will come in. They'll yeah. Or if they have an anthropologist on staff sometimes. Yeah. Or- <sighs> Very few of them have somebody on staff, um, but they'll have a favorite. Yeah. Okay. Right? Um, someone who knows the community really well, who's built the community up, who's, mm-hmm. who's got good relationships. Um, we'll take those studies and overlay what the environmental stuff has done. Um, in some cases, it's a simple geographic overlay. So say you know where some trails are. And you've got a hydro line going in. 
Mm-hmm. You know the hydro line is going to overlap with some mushroom picking trails, mm-hmm. for example. Then you know that's a project effect. Mm-hmm. And so then you've got to go and work with communities to identify the best way for that trail to continue being used. So when the construction comes through, what happens during that construction? What happens afterwards? How do we maintain access to that trail? Mm-hmm. How do we allow the person who owns it or uses it to know that we've maintained access? How do we pass that information on? Stuff like that. And how willing, say just use trails as an example. Trails are a good example. How, how willing are communities to sort of give up their trails, maybe their trap lines or areas that they, that they frequent? Or, I mean, why would they want to tell uh, a consulting firm that they're not familiar with that kind of information? What would propel them to say, yeah, we want to share this because we want everything about our, our community and our knowledge that's passed down to be, be shared? I mean, is that really articulated to communities when they understand the process as far as like how much they want to give, how much they want to hold back? I mean, it's, be- it's, it's kind of a, it's look. tricky. Um, you don't want to share confidential TK information. If anybody studied traditional knowledge, come out of the school of resource and environmental mm-hmm. management mm-hmm. or something like that. Everyone's heard stories about people sharing traditional knowledge, confidential locations, to Western scientists who then share it with everybody else because that's what we were acquired from data collection and then all of a sudden everybody knows where the mushrooms are. Mm -hmm. That's a real issue. Um, We have and we have developed things that keep that in place often when we talk about uh, impacts to trails. The idea that there are 20, 30 X number of trails that are going to get impacted by this hydro line. Um, that's put in a public document, but we don't say where. We don't say what the trails are going to. Mm-hmm. But we do say that we have the we have committed with the community to figuring out where those trails are and maintaining the access and the confidential nature of them, in which that happens completely offline and between, say, our team and the community, or more often their preferred consultant mm-hmm. and the community because that's where the trust lies and can some things be off limits like can they like we don't want this right away for whatever project going through this trail this trail cannot be affected and what if there's no give on the construction footprint like yeah well then you run into the nature of these kind of uh, regulatory documents archaeology is a good example of that mm-hmm. If it's a hydro line and there's a site, maybe it's easy to move it around the site. Maybe, yeah. But if it's uh, there's a transfer station in the way and that's where it's got to go and there's nothing else, then you've got to mitigate that site. Um, from the proponent's perspective. From, it, from the regulatory Point perspective as well. Um, and if it can't be mitigated and it can't be accommodated for, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing that people don't talk about is that there are... Three basic mitigations you look for, avoidance, Mm -hmm. mitigation, and then accommodation. Um, And accommodation can just be, we are going to have an effect on that site. There's nothing we can do about it. To augment that, let's have a conversation about what you would like to do and how much that's going to cost. I can't speak to those. I'm never, I haven't. That happens between a community 
and uh, client. There's some particularly famous examples in BC that have been leaked that are public that we're fine talking about. The PNW one, Pacific Northwest one you were talking about. Yeah, or, with, yeah with the intro. Where they had a public vote about mm-hmm. it with one of the nations. That's an accommodation agreement. And those happen in every project. Um, and they're almost always confidential. Uh, but it's part of the process. And in, and in fact, I mean, in, in a lot of cases, it's, it's seen as, as the, the final step. So if we can mitigate project effects to a, the least amount of effects that can reasonably happen, after that, we're going to, I say we, the proponent would accommodate for it. And either the First Nation agrees with that or not. And when they don't, they tell the regulator that they don't agree with it that they don't think the project should happen as is, here's the laundry list of reasons why we don't, and in the end it's a regulator's job to make a decision. And then that's what leads to uh, environmental assessment certificates being granted, and lots of fights afterwards about whether or not that should have happened. <laughs> this is so interesting to me because, again, I didn't realize that the final decision actually didn't lie with, with the proponent. Uh, it lied with the, the regulatory body. Uh, it, it had always kind of been in my mind that uh, once once like the footprint had been developed, it was up to the proponent how hard they were going to push for that uh, footprint, for oh, like their plan not to change. Yeah. I mean, they can push all they want, but... Um, the federal government in their announcement for Pacific Northwest had 197 90 conditions, right? 190 conditions. 190 conditions. Um, some of them are incredibly stringent. Some of them are incredibly broad-reaching, and we'll see what happens mm-hmm. with them. Um, but those were government regulator conditions pushed on them. And they were... Are they fed by communities' voices and concerns? In some cases, yeah. In some cases... Communities and concerns wanted 280 of them. Yeah. And the government said 100 of those are unreasonable. I'm making those numbers up. I don't know. Yeah. But, like, possibly that, like, that theoretically could be the case. That's, everybody gets to submit their own thing, and the regulator makes a decision. It's a lot of power in one's place. For the regulator? Yeah. yeah. No, entirely. Do you, so what's the frequency of a regulator not granting environmental <laughs> yeah that was my question what's the percentage yeah, yeah. against certificates is that mm-hmm. what you're yeah and uh in general and for ar- archaeological oh reasons. god i don't i don't know if anyone's got numbers no. i don't think <laughs> just i don't think anyone's ever had a project turned down because of uh archaeological reasons hmm. um i feel like there may have been a couple that have to do with particularly sacred spaces that were pushed to the point where they moved their project to avoid them. Hmm. Um, but a re- this is going to get me in trouble, but I'll say it anyway. No, just a, say it, bro. A regulator, no a regulator will more often than not, in my experience... Instead of saying no, we'll say not yet. Yeah. So we've looked at your stuff. You say you're going to have these effects. You think it'll be fine. 
after we do all these mitigations. We don't believe you. You either need to go do more studies to show us that those mitigations will be fine, or you have to go find more mitigations. Mm -hmm. And they'll keep pushing them. Um, do you think that that betrays confidence in the, in the assessment system? It works both ways. Um, so they often delay a yes decision for the exact same way. Um, will they give people more of a chance to make the argument against it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but in the end, because you usually get canceled certificates, not rejected certificates. Or expired. Yeah. Or expired. Yeah. So the cost to the developer has become so great that it's maybe no longer worthwhile to continue pursuing mitigation yeah, strategies. And it's, it's, it's a fair enough process. You don't want to say no. You want to say not the way you've told us. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to continue trying to figure out a new way to do it, that's entirely up to you. Go to town. So that's ideally how it's supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. I have my own issues with it. Mm -hmm. um, often that bar that you have to cross, we like to call it, I like to call it the invisible regulatory bar. It's, you know there's a bar and you know you can jump over it, but you don't know where it is or how high you got to jump. Mm -hmm. And so you just kind of jump as high as you possibly can and sometimes it hits you in the face. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess we should have jumped higher. <laughs> um how I, I just I, I just kind of want to prod here a little bit. I want to I want to bring out the way. bear inside Jay because he's, he's being professional. Again. I am being professional. <laughs> I'm curious, like, how much of a frustration do you see from proponents that want to put these developments through oh, during this regulatory question. process? Do you really think, like, hey, we don't recognize that we're guests in these lands? We don't recognize that there's sort of like indigenous title to these places that we're working and that we're inhabiting? That we see it from a bottom line, we need to get this project that's going to have jobs. But it's, I mean, they, may be, they may have a project that will last a generation, maybe 25 years if they're lucky. But how frustrated are they when they're thinking about potential for extraction of natural resources to help the economy, yeah. to help sort of larger BC and, I guess, international um, companies that are buying yeah. into? Like how frustrated do you see they are as part of the process dealing with communities? I would imagine that uh, is, uh, they would have – of somewhat ignorant or unenlightened understanding of sort of different cultural values in these places that they're trying to develop? Or is that too loaded? No, you're just wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> if they're frustrated, if you want to talk about frustrated with the regulatory policy, yeah. Yes. Okay. I think everybody's frustrated with the regulatory policy. I think okay. the regulators, if you had a guy from the EAO on this couch who didn't yeah. care about his job, would tell you that it's frustrating. Yeah. Um, because it's a very complicated thing. We're talking about the environment. I'm making air quotes. Um, which, you know, you got a PhD who's going to study for like 25 years to look at the interaction between air quality modeling and dispersion of acidity and how that's mm. going to affect a certain patch and a certain species of algae. Like that guy spent like twenty five years <laughs> yeah. doing that stuff. Yeah, and so like, and we've got nine hundred of those questions. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it is really hard to get. It's really complex. Um, dealing with First Nations, everybody understands. Everybody I deal with 
there are bad proponents. I just haven't had that personal experience, so I can't tell you because mm-hmm. I don't know. They've never talked to me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the proponents I've dealt with, they recognize that that working with Aboriginal communities is necessary, and they go out and hire people who know what they're doing for it. Mm-hmm. And so because they've gone out and hired people who know what they're doing, the people who know what they're doing don't have those frustrations with working with First Nation communities. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But they're still removed from the sort of the, the, the board or the proponents tr- or sort of have deeply understanding. I mean, I'm projecting, you tell me. I mean, they, they really have a deeper understanding of what their project is going to affect the community. I mean, they're guests there. They're not going to live there and be part of that long term. You, you know, th- these projects will come and go, but the communities will still be in their ancestral lands, right? I mean, how is that going to affect? The other interesting part of that is that the community, if things go very, very badly, the community is guaranteed going to blame the proponent and not the consulting company that was standing between mm. the proponent and the community. Well, and a lot of what we do is is not stand between the proponent and the community. A lot of what we do is, mm-hmm. is help the... Um, is stand beside the proponent. So I'm never in the room by myself. I always have a proponent with me. Um, and that's because of the nature of these relationships. They know that they've got to build these relationships and deal with them 30 years long after I'm gone. Mm-hmm. Um, follow up on Sean's point about them not living and not working in the community. That's a huge issue. Yeah. Um, I don't think the First Nation communities know what their project effects are going to be. I think everyone's yeah. everyone's scrambling to deal with these things. My favorite piece of information is that the sections I write in an EA... Five years ago, if you went and looked at one of them, they were about 30, 20 to 30 pages long. And now we're into about the 1,000. Mm. And it's taken us four years to get there. And so the First Nations are scrambling to deal with, with what these ramifications are. And we just don't have the long-term data. And yeah. We need more research. We need people who are studying this assessment process. And that doesn't happen enough. There are people who are doing it. Mm-hmm. The Resource Environmental School at SFU mm-hmm. is kicking into these things. There are people who are looking into it. Um, but it is an emerging new field, and there's not enough attention paid to, like, what this means. Yeah, and that's kind of how you, you kind of learned on the fly, right? I mean, it's kinda, pretty we, much everybody's learned on the fly. In, in this sort of field, right, and with different various backgrounds. And the problem is there's not enough time for reflection. Yeah. It's because it's, been, it's a huge push. You don't get a chance to go back. And be like, okay, what worked? What didn't? Five years from now, what did the communities think about what we did and what we said and what the results of that were? Um, and there's another angle, too. Like, and I know we've talked about this before. Like, there's, a, there's an aspect of cumulative effect, and it's something that people are trying to wrestle with and grapple with. I mean, we think of these projects, oh, it's just new in the area, but there's also existing industry in some of these communities, right? Um, and if it's been prior to the 60s, you know, there could have been maybe not the best environmental upkeep. And things have sort of been tarnished or been affected negatively. So how do you how do you wrestle with sort of like looking at all the impacts that currently exist and then trying to deal with that and also uh, articulate that with the First Nations interests? It's incredibly hard and no one does it well. Yeah. Um and that's not anyone's fault. People are trying to grapple with it. But from a cumulative perspective, so what we're talking about is mm-hmm. um, there is an LNG facility, there's two hydro lines, there's a new log dump, 
and 60 new cut blocks that have to happen. All of them get their own regulatory policy. All of them have their own impacts, and they're talked about in isolation. We're required to look at all of them together and talk about how the addition of one project adds to the effects that are felt by combining all of them. Um, Metro Vancouver, Newport expansion, add that to increasing BC ferry traffic, and you've got a cumulative effect of a lot more ships passing by. So if you're a Gilnetter and you want to leave Vancouver to go fish in the strait, not only do you have like four more ferry crossings, but now you've got an extra like 16 con- container ships a week to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a difference between 16 container ships and 16 container ships plus four more ferries mm-hmm. uh, and how they interact. The problem is, is that when I said earlier about how complex this all is and you need a PhD to look at, that's not even getting into the cumulative side of things. You want to get into the cumulative side of things, it's so much harder. Archaeology is easier. Archaeology is easier because you, you can say, I know there are this many sites. Maybe there are some that haven't been found, but I know that there are this many sites. And so cumulatively, this project is on this site footprint, these three projects are over here, this one's here, and this one's here. So if all of these projects happen there's going to be a loss of 20% of the existing archaeology in this whole area. That math's actually pretty relatively easy to do, as opposed to our project's going to make this particular group of sea mammals move a little bit away. But then there are three other projects that may or may not make them move a little bit away. And trying to figure out where all three of them are going to make them move a little bit away too is ridiculous because no one really knows where they're going to where one project's going to make them move a little way away from. So it's it is incredibly cool that we're trying to deal with it. It would be so much easier to just be like, "I don't know. Just do you want jobs? Mm-hmm. <laughs> then we're going to build a thing." Mm. But instead, it's kind of like, you want jobs. I mean, I live in in a small town that everybody... Work is a huge concern for people up there. Not just for the white guys that live in my town, but work is a huge concern for the First Nation communities that live in my town. Um, They want sustainable jobs. They want jobs that work with them, give... uh, good opportunities to them and their kids. They they genuinely want those. But they also don't want to be run over by the development that has to happen. And so the intersection there is just... It's fascinating, and anybody who tells you they understand it is lying. Because, I mean, there's some communities... I mean, it, it, you talked earlier about all the crossover, but some communities will be for certain development projects because they could see maybe positives that would would fill needs in their community totally. and those are going to be against it right and that's sort of like well and this... then you can't essentialize communities right yeah that's, that's... that's... An, an elected uh set of officials may have especially with first nations communities mm-hmm. may have an entirely different set of uh priorities than uh, like maybe like the traditional hereditary chiefs communities and I, i've actually seen this a couple of times with different projects where the, the hereditary chiefs want a very different thing from the elected officials 
And then it, in, within the community, you have infighting about, you know, who's been, who's been bought off by who, if anyone has been bought off at all. But, and like, there's what counts as being bought off. <laughs> and it's so complicated. Yeah. Well, politics is politics. And it doesn't matter. These first, first nation governments are first, they're governments, which means they're elected. And it also means that maybe they were elected with 51% of the vote. Mm-hmm. So forty nine percent of the community isn't happy with them, um, and we essentialize on both sides of the argument. Um, if we're pro development, and you've got a guy who just wants to get her done, so he can get some jobs, <laughs> he essentializes all of the nations as being out there and protesting and not doing any of this stuff. But rest assured, that guy doesn't also want a coal factory to hop up in his backyard and cover his backyard with coal dust. So if that happens, he's going to make sure that they scrub the heck out of the air coming out of that coal. <laughs> and so when you throw those particular things at those guys, they're like, yeah, cool. You want the development to happen, but you don't want them to cover you in coal dust. I'm on board with that logic. Um, but we tend to essentialize arguments because they make it easier. So we see nations, we see First Nations as anti-development. Right. And the ones that are pro-development are either corrupt or being bought out. And we pick and choose the stuff that fits into our narrative. And do you think there's an application to sort of a non-indigenous perspective of indigen- sorry, indigeneity that's thrust upon communities? Yeah, a little noble savage going on. Yeah, like yeah. we're choo- – oh, they can't have this and be like this or do this and have that, right? Yeah. It's sort of – there's still the, the, the those in power still determining sort of what it means to be indigenous and that is sort of an attitude, whether it's – it's kind of hidden yeah. in there when they're sort of evaluating that, when they're reading in the papers yeah. or you see comments in the news and you're just trying to understand these projects. Yeah. Because these projects are really, really complex, as you pointed out so far. Yeah. Just um, as Sean was saying, like, uh, what, what do you feel are the biggest misconceptions about the EA process in the media, in uh, like BC public at large? First of all, no one pays attention to a project until uh, an environmental certificate is issued which is the exact wrong time to pay attention to this. Mm. Sean and I, when we started working together, we were working on a project where there were some people who protested the destruction of a certain section of bog land after someone had dumped something like 180,000 pounds of sand on top of it as part of the construction process. You're like, if you guys genuinely didn't want this to happen and really wanted the bog to survive, maybe pay attention to it before someone loaded it full of sand. And it's that kind of... Um, I haven't been able to get a f- understanding on why people don't... Why people who care about development, be they pro or anti, um, aren't taking an opportunity to get informed aren't taking an opportunity to look at their ability to talk about these things uh, while things are being developed. And part of it is that they don't do a good enough job of advertising this stuff. One of the things that's pissed me off the most in the last couple of years has been how people on both sides of development and anti-development will use First Nations as kind of a flag to wave. Mm -hmm. Either... These guys are for it, or 
you know, brave First Nations standing up in front of the face of oil and gas development. Um, and you'll get communities split apart by two or three families who are against it being funded by environmental agencies and, and having people back them up um, and support them in the same way that pro-development are supporting other people who are for it. And so you get these, like, inflated battlegrounds. And this is one of the huge problems we try to grapple with, what we were talking about earlier, community cohesion. It's just the nature of these projects happening split communities up. Um, yeah, I saw that in Papua New Guinea on a project where yeah. it's not really easy. It was working in Motu communities. It's not very violent usually on the coast. But sort of the way the proponent was dealing with communities and the way they're negotiating and what was going on within communities themselves who had access to sort of like the funds and what the negotiations mm-hmm. were. When we were there, it broke out in bloodshed, and that just doesn't usually happen on the coast. And people were – there was inter-village warfare, right? Do you see this as an impact of the EA process itself? Oh, uh, what do you mean? Do I, oh, do I see the – Generating these – Generating the conflict, conflict? Like, what, like you see, do you do you see this affecting small towns? Like oh, totally. Like, we yeah. used to joke that we needed to do environmental assessments before we could go in and do environmental assessments. Mm. Forget that. Look at Ch- <laughs> like look at look at a town like uh, Chetwin. 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 Who? Chetwin. Sean, Sean and I love Chetwin, BC. Love Chetwin. It's like one of our favorite places. Um, I like Moberly. I like the Moberly River Valley. Yeah. The people that live there. Yeah. But it's there's. To figure out what the project impacts are on four major projects going on there, we flooded them with archaeologists and environmental scientists for mm-hmm. years. Uh, so there were real social and economic impacts to us figuring out what the social and economic impacts were. Mm-hmm. Um, but inevitably, this is... We're all just trying to... Ex- Learn more about how the world works. This is not a... It's not a clean process. Um, it needs to be discussed. It needs to be looked at. It needs to be done better. It needs to be done more local. I mean, the the best thing we could do for an environmental assessment process is build capacity in these smaller communities to deal with this kind of stuff. Um, Can you elaborate on that a little bit, Jay? Within First Nations communities... In- and in particular well. First Nation communities or just any small community? Because, like, if, if, if Chetwin had the ability from a small-town planning process mm-hmm. to deal with, okay, you're bringing this much stuff in, there's this many projects just to start an EA, that means we're going to have this impact to our infrastructure. It means there's going to be less hotels here. It's going to be this. So you guys need to put this much money into it before we can deal with it. Um, but their capacity to look at that over a long term is, is just, it, it's not there. Um, because this is kind of a new thing. And, and because, you know, small towns just don't have the capacity. People capacity, forget just monetary capacity, but like people capacity. And, and how's that too with different communities that have, you know, the capacity within their own communities? Some communities have, you know, quick internet or have resources to yeah. sort of like deal with these EAs or these, these information requests that are coming in. You must see that vary too across the board, which within communities of sort of having to resources and tools totally to to to, to, to take this on. Yep, it's a big responsibility. 
and how remote your community is, is has a huge effect on that. Um, if you're a First Nation community in the Lower Mainland, your ability to attract good people who have the experience and who have to do it is better because it's an environment people want to move to for other life reasons. But if you live in, you know, West Mobe or something like that, it's a lot harder to get people mm-hmm. who who want to move up there, who can move up there for a variety of other reasons. Um, so your your pool of applicants is significantly reduced. It's one of my favorite things. You look at the amount of work that's been done on Haida Gwaii and the Haida Nation. I love the work that the Haida Nation's done. You look at their TK stuff. You look at their um, their marine management plan, which is available online, is brilliant. One of the best things I've ever seen. Uh, the amount of work that was put into it was huge. It was also backed up by Docs Unlimited, WWF, and the um, David Suzuki Foundation. Because it's on Haida Gwaii. Like the BBC documentary team sends their people there to film stuff. Like it, it is... It's not hard if you want to go to a professor at UBC and say, would you want to come work in Haida Gwaii for a year? It, that's not a hard sell. But do you want to come work for my project in, you know, some... Northern BC. Yeah, or, or yeah, like outside of Fort St. John in my industrial park. Yeah. It doesn't have that <laughs> cachet, right? And so, so you... you there's a noticeable difference between um, the environments that can attract people. All right. Uh, that's, that's all for us this week. Uh, until next week, this has been The Transect.